Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. To be one of the most segregated big cities in the nation. But is that such a bad thing? A recently released study says, yes, it is. And we're going to talk about the racial divide in this region so you can decide for yourself. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. A study released by the Metropolitan Planning Association and the Urban Institute says economic and racial segregation costs the Chicago region billions of dollars each year, and they keep the area from being as strong as it should be. With the civil rights era part of American history, people may not think of segregation much at all. But my guest this week would agree it's a subject that does need to be talked about and maybe even acted upon. Joining me in the WBBM studios, Alden Lowry, the Director of Research and Evaluation for the Metropolitan Planning Council. He's had that position for a year and conducts primary research and follows trends. Before that, he worked for the Better Government Association. Previously, he spent a dozen years at the uh, venerable Chicago Reporter as a reporter, editor, and publisher. See, there is life after journalism. Uh, also with us is uh, Juan Carlos Linares. He is the executive director of the Latin United Community Housing Association, or LUCHA. He's previously been a member of the Chicago Plan Commission and the Chicago Commission on Human Relations. He is an attorney by trade. Last but not least is Dr. Stephanie Schmitz-Bechteller. She is vice president and executive director of the Research and Policy Center at the Chicago Urban League. She's been with the league since 2013. Before that, she was associate director of research and policy for the Illinois Consortium on Drug Policy at Roosevelt University, as if you couldn't have had a title longer than the one you currently hold. Uh, I thank the three of you for uh, for joining me. Um, Alden Lowry, let's start with you. How does the MPC come up with an estimate of how much segregation costs this region? Years ago, and uh, the thought was that we needed that information. Um, uh, the Chicago region uh, needs to have um, a kind of a call to action, uh, an understanding that, uh, the premise was anyway, that we needed an understanding that segregation is not something that only impacts communities of color or poor communities. Uh, the thought was that we are all losing because of the status quo. Um, so the MPC enlisted the Urban Institute to actually try to figure out what that cost might be. And essentially what they did was they looked at data from 100 metros, the 100 largest metros across the country, looking at measures of segregation. And we should stress that this is economic segregation and racial segregation, along with a host of quality of life indicators. And what the Urban Institute discovered was that uh, the measurement of segregation, particularly the segregation between African-Americans and whites, is statistically significantly linked with homicides, with educational attainment, and also with income, particularly the income earned by African-Americans. And that's the basis of our report, uh, $4.4 billion in lost black income, 83,000 bachelor's degrees, 78% of which would be earned by whites, the remaining earned by African-Americans, and a 30% reduction in homicides. That's essentially what 
the level of segregation in Chicago is costing us because generally speaking, the regions that have median levels of segregation or near the national median have those indicators. They have more bachelor's degrees, they have fewer homicides, and their African-Americans are earning more income. Um, Juan Carlos Linares, uh, I want to talk about the scope of the problem here. Um, I mean, we, we, we talk about Chicago as a segregated uh, area, but uh, just how segregated is this metropolitan area? And we're not, as, as uh, Alden pointed out, we're not just talking about one kind of segregation. That's absolutely right. So, and, you know, Chicago has celebrated its diversity for such a long time. Um, but uh, what we see, and this is just observable, too, what we see is the communities have not come together. And there are, you know, policy and history. There's policy histories behind this, uh, which we'll we'll talk about in a moment here. But um, in the very aggregate, what this report says is, look, all of us here are facing a cost to our segregation. Um, we are practitioners and we were happy to be advisors on this report and we, our day-to-day work is in housing and advancing housing as a human right. Um, and the, the number that really struck us was uh, because of our segregation, uh, the real estate values could, but for that segregation, our real estate values would have increased by $6 billion. I mean, that's, that's a, a big number, right? So when we, when we look at the report and connect it to what we, what we observe every day in terms of how we're, we're disconnected uh, in terms of race and, you know, really by racism, um, we're, we're all paying a price here. And that's what this report uh, p- puts out there. So I'm happy to talk about the recommendations in a moment here, too, and how we move past that. And we will we will get to that. Uh, Stephanie Schmitz-Bechteller, uh, back in the 1950s and 60s, segregation meant going to vastly inferior schools. There were shoddy facilities. There was blatant discrimination. So why should today's Chicagoans care about this? Excellent question. Um, So we are, you know, when you're with an organization that's been around for 100 years, you have a long shadow of history. Um, And we are uh, commemorating our 100th year this year. And I think what we have found is some of those same conversations that we're having with our clients or with people that live in the communities that we serve on the south side or, you know, even on the west side that are predominantly African-American, we're hearing these same stories now. So sure, we said it in 1950. Sure, we said it in 1960. We're saying those same things now. We still talk about, um, and there is still a tremendous amount of need for providing equitable resources within the schools, making sure that the neighborhoods in which our clients and, and which um, members of our community live are, they have the businesses, they have those other kinds of opportunities, they have jobs. And, and what we found is some of the same stuff that we were dealing with while strides have been made, and we certainly celebrate those strides. Some of the same stuff that we were dealing with when the league first got off the ground at the start of the Great Migration, I mean, we're still having a lot of those conversations now. So even after the Civil Rights Act and all of that work has been done, we still find ourselves really addressing some of these bigger issues. And Juan Carlos pointed this out when he first started, and anyone can jump in on this, is that the communities haven't come together. There are other areas of the country where we've seen increasing diversity, uh, inclusion, what is it about Chicago that is keeping it so so segregated? Um, Alden? I'm not sure I can come up with a, a definitive answer on that. I, I, I think, you know, as we mentioned in the report, Chicago's history is really built off of this kind of practice. Um, it was very deliberate um, in terms of policy, um, and it has been very... I would say almost just kind of a part of our custom as Chicagoans. And it's not to say that Chicago is the only place where we've had 
this level of segregation, but I think it really is a part of the character of this city, and it continues today. So, uh, you know, I grew up on the south side of Chicago, um, uh, uh, born in 1969, at a time when the neighborhood was really kind of changing over where I where I was living, and the those communities that essentially went from all white to all black in a matter of a decade or two decades, you see the same kind of turnover happening all over the region. And people think people in Chicago may think that, you know, the neighborhoods are what they are and have been that for years. Uh, They have been, but there was a dramatic change. That dramatic change is now happening out in the suburbs. You look at places like Calumet city and Lansing that are black uh, South suburbs now, but just 20 years ago, they looked much differently than they do now. And I think, we will continue to see that level of change. It is, like I said, I just think it's a part of our culture and it is embedded in this notion that we tried to get at with this study, which is that I am doing better for myself if I see my neighborhood changing in some way and I leave and go someplace where I feel comfortable, where I'm surrounded by people that I know, I feel safe that the schools are gonna be gonna be good, the streets are gonna be safer, they're gonna be cleaner, the government's gonna run better. And the problem is, is that if we continue to run away from each other this way, we are exacerbating the cost that we try to articulate in this report. And let me, I want to add this to the discussion. Is that really necessarily racial segregation or economic I think segregation? It's both. Because, I mean, isn't it possible that there are people who still value being among people of their own culture or ethnicity that still have that kind of neighborhood? neighborhood pride or, you know, you know, neighborhoods, you know, Lithuanian neighborhoods where, you know, somebody who doesn't speak Lithuanian might feel out of place and and, then the like. Does that how does that factor in? I would say yes. Um, So, you know, we've always had points of entry neighborhoods here. So Pilsen Little Village, just for example, right, have uh, welcomed Mexican-Americans and other Latinos uh, for the last 50 years, I would say. Uh, But if you overlay, I mean, race and, and class are are inextricably you know connected if you overlay of course the the maps on on the census tracts on race and overlap those with those on incomes you will see african americans and latinos are in the low income neighborhoods right it's you 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 can't pull them apart right now um, i do want to say also so we do have this tale of two cities right so we have the very disinvested neighborhoods uh that we've seen on the south and west sides uh, and largely you know and that's by policy so in the history of chicago we've had uh, mayors who have built the housing projects along, you know, uh, State Street um, intentionally to put African-Americans there. We know this. This is recorded history, documented uh, the federal government through FHA, through the federal uh, the first time homebuyer programs, uh, guaranteed loans only to whites. Right. So that led to migration to the suburbs for whites and uh, African-Americans, Latinos and other ethnic enclaves staying in the inner cities. So there are direct policy decisions here that have led to what Chicago looks like today. Now, just to end off on this tale of two cities part, when we look at the north side and if you look at the the census maps that show the different uh, where we live by race, uh, the north side is doing well, right? It's largely uh, in many neighborhoods, largely white Caucasian. um, And there we see displacement of neighborhoods, right? So particularly, uh, let's take Logan Square, for example where 19,000 Latino families have been displaced since 2000. So now we're talking, now we're bringing in class, right? When you have demand from groups coming from the East, uh, coming out to Logan Square, uh, that has the, the, the consequence of raising prices, raising rents. The low-income immigrant families that used to have that as, as a point of entry now have to move farther West. And that has multiplier effects on the school system and school enrollments, right? What kind of businesses are we setting up? Who's serving whom? Uh, so this report doesn't directly reflect all of those multiplier effects, but what it does is point out 
uh, some of that history in, in our current space here of what it's costing us overall as a region. Stephanie? Yeah, and Craig, if I can add to that. Um, and I think there is a difference, too, between residential choice, right, which is where you are coming together because you wish to live among friends or families or those that feel or have cultures that are similar to yours versus segregation. And segregation, if you think about what it is, it's really one of the most effective tools that we have through this pattern of policy and practice to be able to determine who gets access to what. I mean, our residence is at its core what gives us the ability to attend this school versus that school, that gives us the ability to have at our fingertips or within walking or, or drivable distance jobs, um, businesses that are thriving in an economy that's thriving in that neighborhood. So what segregation does is it recognizes that we have in the city, in the state, in the nation, very finite, limited resources that are available to all people. And segregation says, you live here because you live here, you get this. And I think that's why segregation is really problematic because it's not you saying, oh, I'll live here, this is great. It's you, It's someone else saying, you'll live here. And because you live here, this is what you get or don't get. And I think that's the important distinction. But And even when there are efforts to move people into different neighborhoods, it seems like the patterns still kind of continue. I mean, when people were moved out of uh, high-rise housing projects in Chicago, they moved to the suburbs, which then became segregated suburbs that they're, you know, predominantly or substantially African-American suburbs in the South. It, it, It seems like the, is that just policy or is it policy and choice? Uh, Alden? I would say that, um, the looking at uh, particularly looking not just only at the folks who came out of uh, public housing high rises during the uh, mm-hmm. plan for transformation, but also people who just have housing choice vouchers where they can go literally anywhere in the city. I mean, but they are confined to some degree because that voucher has a cap in terms of where you can spend. So, uh, with the exception of a very uh, limited program that this CHA utilizes that allows uh, voucher holders to live in very high income areas. Those folks are really limited to where they can go. The other problem is that even if you have a voucher and you go to some neighborhoods where you can qualify, uh, your voucher can can guarantee you a spot with the rent, you may not get the warmest reception by the landlord or by the neighbors. And so I've heard stories of people being chased out of neighborhoods like Mount Greenwood and others uh, because uh, they didn't look like everyone else, economically or racially. And so, like I said, we still... uh, you know, there's there are limits with regard to where people can afford to live, but there are also limits with regard to where people feel comfortable and where they're accepted. But those voucher holders aren't always looking to go to another predominantly African-American, predominantly low income neighborhood. I think if you talk with many of them, they will tell you, I want to be someplace where my kids have a better, uh, better opportunities, where I have a, a safer environment. I mean, these folks know, I mean, particularly folks coming out of public housing, you know, certainly know what it feels like to live in that grind and aren't necessarily really trying to jump back into a similar situation. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking about the ongoing effects of segregation in the Chicago area. My guests are Alden Lowry, Director of Research and Evaluation for the Metropolitan Planning Council, uh, Stephanie Schmitz Bechteller. Uh, she is Vice President and Executive Director for of the Research. <laughs> 
I have to take a deep breath before I say your title. Uh, director of Research of the Research and Policy Center for the Chicago Urban League. And Juan Carlos Linares, Executive Director of uh, Latin United Community Housing Association. And uh, uh, Juan Carlos, you were, you were about to say something. Yeah, I want to build upon some of um, the comments that were just made. So uh, with respect to, to housing, one of those fundamental needs, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is... Uh, having shelter and where we live and, and the choices uh, that we either make or are made for us. Um, a couple of things. I, I think we should, um, and maybe this is moving into recommendations, but uh, you know, I've uh, I've done some uh, really good work with groups nationally. I've been really lucky to uh, where we talk about leaning into our racism, right? And that doesn't mean we embrace our racism here because this is a big part of it. But just acknowledging that we have biases, right? Acknowledging that uh, you know there there are certain decisions that we make that where race plays a factor. Um, and there, we already mentioned, there are certain intentional things that were uh, done in the, uh, particularly in the 20th century to separate us in terms of housing and uh, public housing. Uh, that said, um, you know, I also wanna reflect uh, and look at what other places are looking like and what they're doing, right? So I was just in New Orleans uh, last week uh, with my family and, you know, racism isn't just a Chicago thing. We, we have an issue <laughs> nationally with racism, right? If you overlay maps on race and class in New Orleans, it looks similar, though not geographically the same uh, as it does in Chicago. Uh, but there's also this perception when we talk about housing and where people live and the choices uh, that are either made for them or, or where they're made. I was very lucky to travel to Singapore a couple of years ago through a fellowship uh, with the Chicago Community Trust. And what I observed there meeting with their housing development board, which is like our CHA, our Chicago Housing Authority, you know, there's not that same stigma that public housing equals, you know, a racial barrier or it equals a certain race. Um, 82% of Singaporeans live in public housing, yet only 19% of Singaporeans are poor. What does that say? They make intentional investments in their entire population to house them so that they can go to work, so that they can go to school, right? Um, it, it, yes, it's not an apples to apples comparison. Um, you know, my friends will say, well, Singaporean is an authoritarian government, right? I would argue Chicago has an authoritarian <laughs> government, right? Um, that said, my point is uh, we have to be intentional about how we how we come out of uh, the findings of this report and how we uh, build more inclusiveness for our communities. Uh, let me ask, uh, as as we're getting into the idea of solutions, what you need is a political will. It's probably pretty easy to get people who are living in poverty to agree that living a different way would be would be good. Uh, but how? Do you get people who are not living in segregated areas or economically depressed areas to also see the benefits of reducing segregation? Uh, and and frankly, that's a, that, that isn't, isn't that part of what it's going to take, Alden Lowry? Yes, I mean that was one of the motivating factors for this report was to come up with uh, essentially uh, a dollar figure uh, that people can apply and understand that as a region we are all losing by the way we live in these isolated fashions, and so that's where the the numbers uh, where we talk about uh, we're essentially losing eight billion dollars in gross and gross domestic product for the region. We're losing, as Juan Carlos mentioned earlier, essentially six billion dollars in residential real estate value. Um, because we have so large and densely populated areas of uh, racial and economic homogeny. And so... Can I, can I stop you for a sure. second? Because people are going to listen to that and think, people can throw out numbers. Sure. And, and how do you judge or how can you measure that that much money is being lost 
in areas that aren't segregated? Uh, so I'll try to do this quickly. Yeah, so yeah, just give me an, an example of where there is an effect from one to the other. Uh, sure. So the, for example, the the eight billion dollar gross domestic product number essentially comes from the fact that regions that are um, less segregated than Chicago, African Americans are typically earning more per capita. If African Americans were earning, as the Urban Institute's uh, analysis shows, four point four billion dollars each year. That growth is equivalent to an $8 billion growth to the region's GDP. If you have a segment of the population that has more money to spend, they're spending that money in the economy, the economy grows, and that's a benefit to the entire region. And so that's one of the reasons why we extrapolated the Urban Institute finding to determine what would that impact be to the regional GDP to articulate that this is a loss for everyone. Okay. Juan Carlos. Yeah, I would say, um, and the report does a great job of looking at the macro numbers, right? The big numbers uh, as a region, what we are losing, what we are paying because of our segregation. But I would say simply look at your tax bill, you know, look at your property tax bill. Um, and again, the report doesn't reflect this, but um, the folks that we uh, serve in, let's again, just for example, Logan Square in the neighborhoods there, the seniors who are, you know, not making any earned income there on Social Security or, or what have you, they're seeing their property taxes go from 3500 to $6,000 a year, right? And on a Social Security income, you can barely afford that, right? So why is the bill rising? Because we're paying for the, I mean, we're paying, for example, out of the report, $65 million more in policing costs, right? So that's, everyone has to pay for that. You know, our, whether it's a property tax issue or a sales tax issue, your, your tax bill shows you that you're paying for this at the, at the micro level in your home, right? Um, let me also say, too, that, uh, you know, there's a shared responsibility here as well. So uh, we we usually speak of this in the white black paradigm. Uh, I'm glad the report reflected on the Latino populations as well, because even in, in terms of forming black brown coalitions, we have to be very intentional about how we how we speak about these things and how we work together. Uh, when, you know, we at Lucha, uh, we straddle communities. So we work in Humble Park and Logan Square, but also East and West Garfield Park. Um, and we'll hear folks talk, you know, well, we don't want to deal with you because you don't come from, you know, the community that I'm familiar with. Right. Um, so this is to uh, the earlier point that was made in terms of our culture here. Um, this is something that I, I'm happy to see the new generations uh, feel less and less confined by them coming from this block or this community um, and working with others. So I have optimism that we can get uh, past where we are now. Uh, Stephanie, you, yeah. you wanted to add something? I did, um, too, just to go back to your question of political will. I mean, I think it's the boldest and the um, among us that might say, well, I don't care at all about segregation. And I mean bold, not in a positive way. Um, but that for the vast majority of people, I think they will recognize this is an issue, th that it is an issue that has repercussions. So I think there is some of the political will there. I think the problem with this, um, I think this report that's come out from MPC and others that have come out have really highlighted that this is not a quick and easy or inexpensive fix. And I think that's where we start to see some of the challenges in, in the recommendations moving forward, right? Because segregation means that you're sort of isolating people or groups of people in a particular area. So you either have to do the costly thing of really reinvesting in these areas economically, within housing, within transit, within businesses, so that the people living there then have access to these kinds of opportunities so that they can live a healthy, happy um, life, or you have to then invest in equally costly uh, updates to infrastructure, transit, mass transportation, then that will move people from their residence then to these places of opportunity. I mean, we are a large metro area. We have a huge spatial um, area that we take up both in the city and then when you include the suburbs as well. And when you think about where opportunity exists, 
that's a lot to overcome. So I think even when we have some of that political will and we do have people that want to work on this and they'll put their name and their their effort into doing so, sometimes what seems to be insurmountable is just, I think, the cost of what it might take to get there. And maybe that's where the political will gets stretched sometime, but they're tricky fixes. Mm. Uh, what are the What are the first steps to changing things? I mean, I, I'm not sure where you where you start uh, peeling that uh, <laughs> peeling that onion or whatever whatever you know faulty uh, analogy I might try to come up with, but I, I'm not sure how you start dealing with it. Some somebody give me a give me a first step, Juan so, Carlos. So I would say the report is a first step. It quantifies the problem that we that we observe, you know, in the communities in Chicago generally and in the region. So the report is a first step. Uh, but I would also say building trust um, and to build upon. Uh, the the comments on political will. Let me let me first say though that the report itself, you know, I was happy to be an advisor through my role at Lucha. It was a very diverse uh, set of advisory members there, both from uh, the the demographic, the ethnic side, but also from industry. Uh, so you know, it's it's a good start. Um, in terms of political will, you know, we have great uh, legislators in the state. We have great aldermen. Uh, you know, very, very strong voices in terms of wanting to turn things around here in Chicago. But the trust level, you know, the last number I saw was from 2014. Um, you know, the the trust factor is only at 28 percent of Chicagoans trust their city government. This is from 2014. I would imagine it's even lower today when you see numbers like 31 of our last 100 aldermen have gone to jail or four of our last seven governors have gone to jail. These are not good things that lift the spirits. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, there's an optimistic side of me that says, let's work with those that have those active voices. And there's plenty of them out there uh, who are working on good things. I'll just put it out there. For example, we work with the treasurer's office and they're working on this uh, municipal depository ordinance. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tool that can be used to uh, spread capital, uh, you know, by policy throughout uh, the city. So it's really building trust between the communities and our city government again. Uh, Alden Lowry, uh, what are the other things that are in, in, either in that report or just in, in, in your own mind that can start moving this area towards uh, a better a better mix? Well, one of the things that MPC is trying to do over the next several months is having conversations with folks like Juan Carlos and with Stephanie uh, and their institutions uh, and many others and really kind of trying to unearth the, the very question that you're asking, you know, in what ways do we see uh, the isolation impacting our communities and affecting our work? What are the obstacles to actually having success? Things that can be very clearly identified, particularly if, it, if there are policies, things that are built into law. And then also, in what ways have we seen some levels of success? Have we seen levels of success with regard to maintaining affordable housing in communities that are seeing some level of gentrification in terms of educational spaces where we can see uh, low-income students or students of color actually achieving very well or in economic development where we've actually been able to bring investment into certain neighborhoods? We've seen flashes of success like in the Pullman neighborhood and others. You know, what were the building blocks to those successes? And are there things that we can replicate? Are there examples that exist in other metros that we can we can learn from as well? Really kind of having conversations and trying to kind of uh, create this larger dialogue around what possible things can we do to address the level of segregation or to, to essentially diminish the inequality that we see that may be a result of the segregation. And the hope is that the early part of 2018, uh, we can issue a series of policy recommendations, and then the real hard work begins from that point, and that's actually building the, the you know building the political will, building those coalitions to actually implement those policies. But that's at least the thought process at this point. Hmm. I mean, I wonder, and Stephanie, uh, maybe you can uh, help me out here. 
are there either housing policies? I mean, I've seen a lot of attempts to do it through government policies. And, and housing, I think, is one of the better examples of where you do something with good intentions and it doesn't always... Uh, so we we uh, we just have basically half an hour. Can can gov- can government do it? Well, I think government plays a key role uh, in doing it, and in fact, so much of the policy that we have, they are that is where you do that work. Um, so I think they are definitely a player in this. But I really think that communities and community organizations are equally relevant, equally necessary, and equally important. Um, there's important lived experiences and voices that will and should contribute to this because there are ideas, there are solutions out there. Uh, that we hear that I think we need to bring up the scale and to them. And that's going to be the final word. Uh, but let's hope this discussion can continue at, at, at another time. I hope to uh, have you all back. I would like to thank Alden Lowry, Director of Research and Evaluation at the Metropolitan Planning Council, Juan Carlos Linares, Executive Director of Latin United Community Housing Association, and Stephanie schmitz Beckteller, the Vice President and Executive Director of the Research and Policy Center for the Chicago Urban League. Thank you all for spending this time with us. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, that's cbschicago.com. Just follow the audio links. You can also find our podcasts on play.it. I'll be back next week with another edition of Ad Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.